Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Again, we'll be looking at one verse this morning and actually for the next two weeks. For this week and next week, we'll be looking at this verse. Nearing the end of the Ten Commandments. And this is, this is one we're quite familiar with. We, we oftentimes think of telling the truth as kind of a basic regurgitation of the facts. Truth tellers are honest and forthright, and they're not worried about feelings. They're not worried about, um, about preferences. They just tell the truth. They don't sugarcoat unsavory details. Uh, they don't downplay anything problematic about an event or a belief. But do we really appreciate such unfiltered truth? Uh, I have an appreciation for courtroom dramas, reading them, um, watching movies about them. Some of my favorites are To Kill a Mockingbird and A Time to Kill. Uh, but one of the best is A Few Good Men. And there's a quote in that movie. It's one of the best known quotes. Um, In fact, American Film Institute ranked this quote number 29 on their list of 100 most memorable movie quotes. And it's Jack Nicholson as Colonel Nathan Jessup defending himself on the stand. And he says, you can't handle the truth. And there's a whole scene. It's an incredible scene building up to that moment. and, And then it leads to some other very colorful language following this statement. But... It is a a powerful scene and a moment where he is challenging whether we really want to understand what really happens, right? What's true about uh, military conduct. T.S. Eliot wrote, Humankind cannot bear very much reality. In 1987, Alan Bloom criticized higher education in his book, The Closing of the American Mind. He's a a philosopher, a philosophy professor, um, and he saw how the pursuit of truth had been really replaced by the prevalence of relativism. And he wasn't necessarily blaming one thing. He was saying it was something that the culture was teaching these children so that when they get to college, they, they don't really have this concept for absolute truth anymore. They understand this relativist, they understand the world to be relativistic, right? It teaches that there is no absolute truth. It's relative. It's whatever you want it to be. And so it's, it turns um, truth into simply personal preferences. Instead of seeking objective evidence to determine ultimate truth and giving you principles in which you might discover that truth, students are content to define their preference, and that was, that was really a problem growing back when he wrote that in 1987, a, a problem that he was recognizing. Today, we could say it's only gotten worse. Relative, now, relative truth must be protected at all costs. Students are allowed to find safe spaces so that their, their preferences aren't even challenged anymore. They don't have to have an argument for why they prefer that. It just has to align with how they feel, with what they want. And so now, instead of the uh, closing of the American mind, you have the coddling of the American mind, written 
recently, uh, I think 2018, by Jonathan Haidt and uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, and they explain how students provide that they're provided safe spaces to learn without fear of their worldview ever being challenged. And not only are the students the focus of that book, but the professors, the, the, these higher institutions that are also being taught how to coddle the students' minds, how to, how to understand things they might say that are microaggressions. And this is language that's common um, in the education field. So maybe Colonel Jessup was right. We really can't handle the truth. The average college student would probably think that telling the truth is the same as speaking your own truth. And just saying what you believe and standing firm on that whether you have the evidence to back it up or not. In 20, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's, it's that Christians are not exempt from these dangerous slides into moral compromises either. The church can be complicit in teaching this kind of concept of truth and catering to those who, who are unwilling to look at the data because of their own personal experience. So we can sympathize with those who have an experience, right, that that really um, compassion is the appropriate response, but having a compassionate response does not mean that an entire system or structure needs to be destroyed, burnt down, and then built up from the ground up. So the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables. You have the primary focus of the first table being in the commandments one through four is our duty to love God. And then on the second table, commandments five through 10 is our duty to love neighbor. And the way we love our neighbor, according to the ninth commandment, is that we speak truthfully to them as well as about them. So before we read this, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that every time we sit under it, you are speaking. And that you are always speaking what is true. And because of that, it's always relevant to our lives. It's important for us to listen and to hear and to obey the truth. That we would not just be hearers only, but doers of your word. And so even as we have asked for you to enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth, we now ask you would give us the ability to actively listen by your spirit. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth, hearts that are softened to it, that we would truly be convicted to be brought to a, 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 a repentance, to, to a new and lively expression of faith that your spirit wrought in our hearts as we sit under your word. Lord, that is what we want to happen every time we open your word, whether it's gathered corporately or, or worshiping with our family or privately, but we want to be transformed by you. And so help us to depend upon you, remove the distractions from our minds, and help us to engage our hearts as we pursue the truth. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Amen. This is God's holy word. 
Well, we'll see this in, in really just two sections. We're going to break it down from speaking truthfully to your neighbor and then speaking or speak truthfully about your neighbor. That's the simple outline that you have in your bulletin. So let's begin with speaking truthfully to your neighbor. In order to understand the importance of the subject, we, you, you have to think in terms of the vertical, or vertical relationship. Vertical relationship between God and man. As with each of these commandments, we think both vertically and horizontally. They all have implications for that. Even though we, as we said, the first commandment or the first four are in relationship to that vertical, uh, they primarily focus on the vertical component. And then the, the latter six focus on that horizontal component. Uh, but all of them overlap to some degree. And so even with this ninth commandment, we can recognize that the vertical component, we should begin there because it grounds that horizontal component. Truth is important because it reflects the nature of God. Even as we saw in John 8, that Ray read earlier. That these are, this is, if, if God is truth, then we should prioritize truth and truth-telling. Right? The honesty of God is, is, the, is one thing that makes him unique from mankind. He doesn't lie. He doesn't have regret. And so God always tells the truth. He cannot lie and since we are made in the image of god we depend upon honesty as well to foster the relationships that we have with one another any relationship that's based upon fraudulent claims is going to be short-lived if not disastrous if the truth ever comes out and if you're ever going to truly get to know someone uh, then, then if you find out that, that everything you knew about them was a lie, it's going to have disastrous consequences upon the quality of that relationship. So we oftentimes depend upon the testimony of someone, even before we, like, how are you introduced to someone? Usually it's through someone you trust and know. Um, occasionally you'll meet a stranger and you'll get to know them, but those are things that you, you'll work out as you, as you communicate with them. You're, you're getting to know who they are, where they're from what they do um and it, it and and if it's all if it's all fraudulent then it's not going to be a very deep relationship right? or if someone's unwilling to divulge that information which is perfectly understandable today uh but but that's not going to foster a relationship right if if you're trying to meet people and you're you never want to answer their questions about you that's going to put a barrier between you and them understandably third john 12 says Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself we also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true so he makes that com that uh, connection there between testimony and truth the connection between what we say about ourselves and others and what is true internal commitments then impact the way that we treat others so after recognizing, first of all, the, the nature of God and its relationship to truth, we need to consider our own commitment to truth, personally, internally. And so I want to begin with the recognition of what Proverbs 22.1 teaches. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. We, we build our reputation 
for, for a good purpose. And certainly you can idolize our reputation. We can make that so much of a priority that it, that it shadows anything we're doing for God, that that, that really becomes why the, the motivation and the ground for everything we do is our reputation. I'm not suggesting that, but if we appreciate truth, then the first thing we appreciate is, is, is our own reputation. We value that reputation. And so we preserve it, and we promote whatever is true about ourselves. We're careful about making commitments, but when we do make those commitments to someone, we keep our word. We want to be known as someone who honors the commitments we've made. We speak truth in both comfortable and uncomfortable situations. We don't seek conflict, but we're not afraid of it. We listen to others sincerely, and we speak freely because we have nothing to hide. So through consistent communication and behavior, we begin to develop a good name for ourselves. If we're inconsistent in our application of these things, then we don't have a great name for ourselves. And and we're all about trying to build up a reputation, right? Maybe we have to do it from scratch, or maybe we have to overcome some barriers that we ourselves have created about our, our good name. So these are all ways in which we can protect, preserve, and promote our good name. It's through that consistent communication and behavior. And then once we have that good name, we ought to prize it and value it even more than riches. Therefore, we need to defend our name whenever it's falsely attacked. Many of you know that I was a kind of a, a viral sensation a few weeks ago. Um, my 30-second video has now been viewed over 130,000 times by people who have wasted 30 seconds of their lives. Um, but anything over 100,000 means it's officially viral. So I can say I'm a, I'm, I've gone viral. It's utterly ridiculous, right? I, I was depicting Governor Newsom's recommendation to wear your mask between bites. It was meant to be silly and funny, but some became quite furious about what I was doing. Most people got it, I think. Um, and then those who were furious, I think some of them were, were really more furious at the governor and what I was depicting, not necessarily me. But I got called some pretty nasty things as well for being a compliant sheep, a, foolish moron and whatever, much worse than that. But thankfully, I had some good friends who knew me well enough to know that it was being, uh, that it was a joke, that it was satire, right? I've built my good name on sarcasm and it's finally paying off. (laughs) But do you have a good name among others, both inside and outside the church? Scripture encourages us to have that. Are you concerned to defend your own reputation? Are you willing to do the hard work to clear your name against false accusations? Sometimes that is necessary. Confrontation and patient explanation will be necessary, but it must be done if you want to preserve your name. And so if you love truth, you will defend yourselves against slander. 
John 17, 17 emphasizes the importance of, of God's word in knowing truth. But truth is also a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the personification of truth. And so that's what grounds our proclamation of the gospel. But notice what happened when Jesus spoke this truth. When he called himself the way, the truth, and the life. People were offended to the point that they sought to kill him and eventually did. Certainly it would have been much easier for Jesus to remain silent or to say something that was less revealing about himself so that he could preserve his life. But he was unwilling to withhold the truth from them, even if it would lead to devastating consequences. In fact, we know that that was part of the plan, part of his purpose from the beginning. And so speaking the truth will inevitably cause offense at times. Not in every situation, of course. Many people will appreciate the truth that is shared, but some will be offended by it. And we can expect that to happen if it happened to Christ. So relationships depend upon honesty, but sometimes it's our honesty that causes offense in those relationships. So the first question I would ask you is, do you love the truth to the degree that you're willing to face that disruption, even in your most precious relationships? You should. You should love the truth to that degree that at times it creates tension and offense. You shouldn't only be concerned with speaking the truth to preserve your own name, but also recognizing the need to defend others, to speak truthfully about your neighbor. So that's what we see in this second half. God, or or the the text of the commandment itself is, is given in the context of a courtroom. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. The imagery there is of a courtroom and, and, a, and a person being a test, uh, giving their witness testimony to what they know. Right? Providing false testimony could have resulted in death for the one who's falsely accused. And so a lack of integrity in the judicial, judicial system does lead to a breakdown in society. This is an important foundational principle. It's why it's relevant not only to believers, but to everyone. It's relevant to every society. And if you have a breakdown in in the judicial setting where false witnesses are allowed to testify, it's not long before the entire uh, structure collapses. You cannot have a fair society where there is corruption in the courtroom. And so we'll look at this in greater detail next week. But the call to be honest about our neighbor certainly goes beyond the courtroom. We show our appreciation for our neighbors by treating them with respect. We don't seek to find their faults, but we anticipate them uh, to have many positive traits. And we want to highlight those traits more than we highlight areas of maybe disagreement or disapproval. We know that the fall has caused total depravity, but that doesn't mean that we expect a person to always act upon their worst instincts, that they're as bad as they could be. 
And so we're hopeful that they will act according to God's moral law because we know that they are guided by a God-given conscience and we can, we can appeal to that conscience for the sake of truth. And unless there's evidence, we should refrain from impugning someone's character. Rather, we want to promote their good name. And that involves responding with joy when they are recognized. Not becoming uh, envious of their recognition. Third John 3 and 4 also says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Again, this was one of John's greatest blessings in life, was to hear testimony of people walking in truth, people preserving and promoting that truth. So Paul acknowledged the grace that he recognized in the Christian, at the, uh, of the Christians in Corinth. And if you know anything about Corinthians, and I've mentioned it before, that, that was a church that was filled with corruption. They had problems to deal with, but even still, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, Paul is grateful for them. He prays a prayer of thanksgiving to God on their behalf, recognizing their gifts and their graces. Now, he has some significant truth bombs to drop in their lap later on in the, in the letter, but he opens up with that recognition of what he's grateful for. He was not joyful in their wrongdoing. Right? That, was, that was a burden for him to share, to explain the truth. It, that's what was going to build tension in the context of the church, and, he, and that brought tears to his eyes. But he was joyful when he thought of what graces and gifts God had given them. And he prayed for them with hopeful expectation that he would receive a good report of their perseverance and their correction of many of these um, false practices that they were in, um, participating in. And so we offer support to our neighbors who, who suffer from infirmities and injustices. That begins by weeping with those who weep. Now, weeping is not the only thing that we do, right? We should ask questions to determine how we might help beyond that. Uh, in some cases, being present is going to be sufficient, and that's what someone wants more than anything. It's just that enjoyment of fellowship. But in other cases, we might be able to utilize the gifts and resources that God has given us and blessed us with to be an encouragement in those situations. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let love be that motivating factor in our relationship with one another. And if we love, then we are willing to express the truth about a situation. And we're not going to withhold that from them. This will involve putting an, an end to gossip. And we know that it will only erode relationships if we allow gossip to fester. We discourage flattery because it builds relationships upon a facade. We prevent the spread of slander, preserving the integrity of those who are wrongfully being attacked. And we do this because we are beginning to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Because he is actively at work in our hearts. And so speaking the truth doesn't mean that 
that we have to say everything you're thinking as much as you might want to in some cases. I I know one prominent pastor, and I'm not going to name names, but one prominent pastor who was at a conference with several other prominent pastors. And when the conference host showed his library to his guests, his colleagues, one of them declared, I would consider myself to have been a failure if this library was my legacy. It was just... A harsh statement. He had a a large, vast library with some incredible books, and it was a it's a magnificent looking library. And so the statement from one who was a dear friend would have been crushing, right? To to make some kind of assumption about how he is idolizing this library. There's a place for boldness and even honest accountability in relationships. But presumptuous statements betray an uncharitable spirit. And so we need to be careful that we aren't projecting our own subjective values upon others. If If this were mine, I know I would be doing that, so you must be doing that too. That's not necessarily the case. And so in John 8... Jesus confronts the Pharisees and speaks truthfully about all who tell lies. Humans lie because they are following the pattern of the father of lies. And so again, we'll, we'll unpack that further next week as we'll consider the, the negative aspect of the command. And we'll also consider something that may be on your minds already about what may or may not be exceptions to the commandment. What do we do with passages like the story of Rahab or the Hebrew midwives? Those have to be addressed here as well. And so we'll take some time to do that. Hopefully that builds enough interest in you to return next week. But we can reiterate the importance of honesty for maintaining order in society. A good judge will rule based upon the evidence that is provided in a case, And if the evidence has been manipulated or fraudulently provided, then the decision will be wrong. No matter how honest that judge is, no matter how good and ethical the lawyers and attorneys are, if the evidence it's based upon is faulty, then the, then the decision will be faulty. So the testimony of a witness is crucial. That's why they, they must be allowed to be questioned by the defendant. They don't just get to make wild accusations about someone and and the assumption is that it's true no there needs to be a time of q a time of cross-examination they need to be able to corroborate their evidence and show that they have integrity and commitment to speak what is true if their witness account is found to be unsubstantiated then their testimony must be thrown out so if this is true in society if that if that begin if if a corrupt courtroom can begin to break down a society, then it's all the more important that we live this way within the context of the church. Our testimony is a crucial part of Christianity. Do you have a reputation among fellow believers of speaking truthfully to and about others? If not, repent and do what you can to restore the good names that you've slandered. 
Christians have an appreciation for the truth because of their union with Christ. And so Christ alone was always honest, is always honest. He never entertained any gossip. He never slandered others. And when the very people he came to save turned their backs upon him, it was their false testimony that condemned him to crucifixion. And so Jesus died because of the vast corruption prevalent throughout the Jewish judicial system at the time. The satanic Sanhedrin held a rigged trial and then handed Jesus over to Rome to be put to death. And Jesus not only died because of the violation of the ninth commandment, but his death also paid the penalty for all believers who have and will violate this commandment. When Satan stands beside you to accuse you of every false testimony you've ever uttered, God looks upon the perfect righteousness of his son and silences the accuser. And so when we recognize that Christ has done for us, when we recognize all that he's done for us, we're motivated to represent him as faithful witnesses. And so the proclamation of the gospel is motivated by and grounded in the personification of the truth, which is Jesus Christ. If you're a believer here this morning, then you have received the Holy Spirit who has emboldened and empowered you to be Christ's witnesses. After giving his disciples the command to make disciples of all nations, he promised to be with them always to the end of the age. And then he gives them one last promise before his ascension. It's found in Acts 1.8. It's a promise we all need to hear. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Christ is continuing to fulfill that promise through his church as we express the truth, the unvarnished truth of the gospel. We proclaim it in a world that desperately needs to hear it. So if you've been forgiven by the only perfect witness then he has called you and enabled you to be his faithful witness in this world. And so let us thank him and let us rely upon him to send us out in light of that truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us a commission and that you have clearly enabled us to fulfill that commission for your glory. As we speak the truth, it is a loving thing to do, even if it will cause offense at times. And so we can be unashamed in our proclamation of that truth. We should be undaunted by the attacks of the world, the attacks of a culture that has become uh, that has flipped truth on its head and that, that considers truth to be subjective. That bases their knowledge and understanding of the truth upon feelings. And that doesn't describe or define everyone. Some, some have prioritized uh, experimentation or science, uh, scientific uh, theory above your word. 
Lord, we know that, that your world lines up with the truth that you've revealed in Scripture. And so as we proclaim that truth, it's going to be offensive to those who have not been drawn to you by your Spirit. And so help us to be willing to speak that truth and to uphold that truth in our lives. Lord, where we've fallen short of that, where we have compromised, lead us to repentance. Grant us the gift of repentance. Help us to endeavor after new obedience, to grieve over our sin and the, the, the names that we've drugged um, through the mud with our accusations, our false accusations or even the gossip that we've spread, or the flattery that we've received. Lord, all of these are means of really attacks upon the truth. Help us to prioritize and love the truth because it represents your nature, your character. And Lord, help us to walk in that truth by your spirit. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we'll sing our hymn of response, The Church's One Foundation. You'll find it in your bulletin or in page number 404.